Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. All right, so I take up the way of meeting others on equal ground. <clears throat> Sometimes this is uh, worded as not praising self at the expense of others. So this, be, this precept helps us uh, kind of shine the light on all the ways that we measure ourselves against others, right? This judging mind. Um, the opposite of that is this equal ground phrase, right? Which can acknowledge differences, but respects all humans equally. So this doesn't mean that we're the same. This doesn't mean we have equal talents or equal abilities, equal skills, or even equal access to resources, right? This doesn't mean there isn't privilege. <clears throat> it just um, shines a light or a reminder to tell us that we're all equally human. Full humans with all of our you know, hopes, dreams, and faults. So this precept invites us to not view people from the perspective of faults. Really, um, it, it calls us or it reminds us, gives us a chance to explore all the ways that we measure ourselves against others. This precept reveals the realm of competition, of one-upmanship. And it's not limited to speech, but includes our actions as well. The way we say, you know, maybe don't invite everyone to the event, or we um, carve out a side discussion with those who are equals versus those who aren't. I just had this vision of people at a cocktail party, you know, congregating or magnetic, you know, magnetically being drawn to those that they admire or they think are one up, right? And avoiding the people that are beneath them. It's all too common a practice. And it's not limited to just individuals, right? We humans, we do this as with groups, right? We could easily sit here and say that, you know, Buddhists are much more open-minded than you name your other religion, right? Name your other practice. So this precept really gets to the heart of comparing mind, right? It's an invitation for us to see all the ways that comparing mind operates day in and day out. Uh, Diane relays this story about Thich Nhat Hanh. During the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese teach, Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh spoke before a liberal, politically active audience in Berkeley, California. 
When asked about taking political action, he told the audience that taking action was important, but more important was to try to remember that they are not helping bring peace as long as they place themselves in a morally superior position. They are not helping to bring peace as long as they place themselves in a moral, morally superior position. He reminded us that we can be very good at writing letters, but very poor at opening our hearts and minds to those who oppose us. Right, it's a great reminder, right? Um, we can get uh, kind of lofty and high-minded in our ideals, right? And start to, uh, in that comparing mind, judge ourselves as superior, right? And what that does is just sets us apart, segregates us. We miss the connection, we miss an opportunity. When our attention is focused on maintaining ourselves above others, then in actuality, a closing off and separation occurs. Opportunities to realize our connection are sacrificed. Sacrifice to the God of comparing mind. Which reminds me of my favorite little book, The Tao Te Ching. Right at the beginning. I'm sorry, Todd, could you tell us the, the book again? The Tao Te Ching. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's something like that. There we go. <laughs> <clears throat> This is the translation by Stephen Mitchell, which I like. <clears throat> Chapter two, when people see some things as beautiful, other things become ugly. When people see some things as good, other things become bad. Being and non-being create each other. Difficult and easy support each other. Long and short define each other. High and low depend on each other. Before and after follow each other. Therefore the master acts without doing anything and teaches without saying anything. Things arise and she lets them come. Things disappear, and she lets them go. She has, but doesn't possess. Acts, but doesn't expect. When her work is done, she forgets it. That is why it lasts forever. So there's two sides to this judging mind, right? <clears throat> as soon as you have one, you create the other. <clears throat> uh, 
as soon as you think you're worse than, you create the better than, you create the separation. So this precept really calls our attention back to this judging mind, to this comparing mind. The issues encountered in this precept are rooted in this judgment. Measuring ourselves against others. To judge is to witness, evaluate, analyze, and solidify into opinion. And Diane talks about how often we do this um, as a way to assuage our own fears and our needs. As I was saying, Diane talks about how often um, this habituated response kind of covers up a, a way to uh, assuage our own fears or unease. Right? We can look around the room and say, oh, I'm, I'm dressed better than her or and deflect from our nervousness maybe. We can do this with friends, with coworkers. We can look around the Zendo and see who we're sitting up straighter than. Been there, done that. <clears throat> we can make ourselves feel better. Some people like to make themselves feel worse. Right? That's their comfort zone. Look around the room and make ourselves feel worse than. We can't get rid of this judging mind. And that's not our goal. You know, as the Zen koans say, ordinary mind is the way. But with practice, we get to choose what we energize. We get to choose what we um, give our presence to. I like to tell a little, you know, anecdote from my own you know, work in Zen. And I think it was around the time I was taking the precepts, although I don't really remember. But it was in the first couple of years when I had started at Alpamata. <clears throat> and things were starting to shift, starting to see things in different ways. And I started to notice all the ways that I judged everyone and everything, right? <clears throat> this is a, and I'll apologize to all of you right now, we're going through the precepts class because what we end up doing is making you see all these ways in which you do things like this, which your small mind operates, right? How many people have caught themselves as we work on these precepts just going, oh my God, I can't believe I do this all the time, right? I'm, there's some hands up. Yes. Right. And so I was going through an experience like that around judging mind, whether it was the person in the checkout line, where there was the car passing next to me, and it, they just came to become more and more and more. Every single, it, it appeared, every single interaction I had in my day was in some form of judgment um, until it was almost overwhelming. Right? And I started to wonder what was wrong with me. And then I realized I had the judgment that I shouldn't be that way. And it was just another judgment. 
that helped to release it a little bit. This is not about making, you know, making ourselves wrong. This is how we're wired. This is part of our compartmentalizing, analyzing, judging, explain, predict, predict control. It's how we navigate the world. Just don't be fooled by it. Just don't be so sure. Use the tool, learn how to set it down. That's what we need to do. We don't need to banish it. We just need to learn how to set it down when it's not called for. <clears throat> so I'm gonna pause there for a minute for any questions or reflections before I move on. I can share a reflection because I recall um, like the moment I fell into this in an intensive. So I was in an intensive and we were, it was at Alpamata. And when we were doing Ken Hen and, you know, the floor was creaking and we were all walking around and I just kept saying to myself, why I was just so fixated on one person who was, I kept noticing her out of the corner of my eye. And I kept saying, why did she decide to wear those pants with that shirt? I mean, it was like, and I could not stop thinking about it. I had to go to Peg and say, I, I can't, I, why do I keep, it's like bothering me so much. It didn't match, you know, and I, I, it took, it was a big moment for me to sit down with Peg and basically we were talking about this particular uh, topic that you're talking about. And, I, and since then I, I've worked on that conditioning quite a bit. So I just wanted to say I'm 100% I'm guilty of, of doing this and I noticed it in an intensive for the first time. Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All right, continue on. Be neither better nor worse than others. It's just that easy, right? being either better nor worse than others. How do we do this? How do we meet others on equal ground? One way to shine a light on this precept is to see our own habitual response we make when we make a mistake. Diane talks about this on page 82, right? In those moments when we goof up, when we make a mistake, yeah. That was a big lightning strike. <laughs> Hope the power doesn't go out. Um, if we're present in the moment when we make a mistake, often we can see our habitual response to it, right? Do we tend to blame others? Do we tend to make up excuses? Do we tend to say, well, I wouldn't have done it that way? 
catching yourself in one of those little moments can be very enlightening because it gives us a little window into how we operate in this judging mind, how we operate trying to be one up or one down from others. This judging mind, though, it, it consumes a lot of our energy. It can when we're in it. I see some head nodding there. That one resonated, I guess. It does, right? Especially when you're caught in it and spinning in it. It, it consumes a lot of that psychic energy. I wonder what we could be doing with it if we weren't doing that. <clears throat> Reserving this time and energy might allow it to be used more productively when we make that mistake. Maybe we could witness our impact on the world. What ripples came out of it? Maybe there's some repair work to be done in a relationship. Maybe we, had, we could course correct if we weren't caught in judging mind. And one of the real downsides of this is that we keep score, right? Especially in our close relationships. Tallying, we tally the results of our judgments over time. And this tallying just helps to solidify our idea of self, what Suzuki Roshi called the idea of self. We're just, re, we're continuing to, to draw that box around ourselves about how we are, how we think we are. We ink, we ink it freshly again. Yes, again today, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. I should have done this. Solidifying that idea of self. Lifetimes of judgments solidify in our, into our belief character, which we then get to reenact as a self-fulfilling prophecy, because that's who we are. And of course, it's not just with ourselves. We box everyone else in as well. Will you repeat that again, Todd, so I can write it down, please? Lifetime of... Lifetime of judgments solidify our believed character, which we then reenact into a self-fulfilling prophecy. Thank you. The idea of self. This is Suzuki Roshi's idea of self. <clears throat> Diane says, we substitute an idea about who we are. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to try again. We substitute an idea about who we or others are or should be for the simple truth that as human beings, we are good at some things and not so good at other things. Right, so she's not denying the fact that we have our skills, talents, and abilities. Right? We're good at some things and not so good at other things. But we substitute an idea about who we are 
instead of just being conscious of the fact that you're good at some things and not so good at other things. So when we're not in on equal ground, oh, let's, Joan, were you, did you have a question? Did I miss you earlier? I just had something I wanted to say because it, it's something that just struck me and I don't know, it's hard to figure out whether saying something that is really important to me is gonna mean anything to anyone else, but. Well, it, I'd rather you try and let's see. Okay, I'll try. The realization that if I could be real with my faults, I would make human relationships. Does say I that again. Say it again. If I could just be real, instead of trying to be this person I want everybody to see as being smart and wonderful, if I'm just willing to be vulnerable and be who I am, we can have a, real, a human relationship. And that's the only way you get it. It sounds relieving. Yeah. Thank it was, you. It was a sort of a moment's realization and it isn't with me all the time, but I've seen that's the most useful thing to quit trying to be all these things on the surface. Very well said, thank you. <clears throat> so when we're not on equal grounds, on unequal grounds, it's separating kind of by definition. Right? We don't stand where they stand. We attempt to exist on another level. And often these judgments, when we're putting ourselves on unequal ground are fueled by our stories. If someone doesn't acknowledge us, do we immediately build a story that they don't like us? Do we build a story that um, we're not good enough? Reifying or reinforcing this inequality. And the last thing I'll leave you with from Rosetto is her observation that a good signal that we're acting out of a requirement that we have on other people or our surroundings is if we note some upset if we're not acknowledged for our actions. It's a good way to recognize which frame of mind you're in. If you note some upset if you're not acknowledged for your actions, and there's a chance that you had some requirement there. And just a reminder on her process for working with the precepts. Stop, look, and listen, right? <clears throat> Study your words, your actions, your body, body language. Pause in that dead spot 
when the mindfulness bell goes off and you have some inkling that something's going on, you need to do a little investigation. Try and work with situations as they occur. And I'll put a plug in for the learning record. Try and do these learning record observations. Come back to them, those little moments when you saw that upset and when you noticed you were in judging mind. Here's a good one for this. You know, next time you're out in public, city bus, grocery store, go around and just look at each person for three to five seconds. See what small mind does with that, with each interaction. And then to counteract this, an exercise is to work on meeting the stranger. Try to meet everyone as a stranger. Work on that not knowing mind. It's not high-minded and spiritual sounding, but in a practical way, we're just training that don't know muscle. We're training the don't know mind, the one that uh, reserves judgment, is not sure, doesn't know. Okay, and I'm going to wrap up by reading you the bit that she has at the end of the chapter. Perfection of being neither better nor worse. Like the air I breathe, subtle and slippery, this student's words describe so well both the intensity and character of our reactionary patterns. We believe them to the marrow of our bones, but we don't have to spend the remainder of our lives living that way. We are perfect as we are, even if we don't experience ourselves or others in that way. As the poet Rilke reminds us, Take your practiced powers and stretch them out until they span the chasm between contradictions. For the God wants to know himself in you. And that's what our practice with this precept offers us. The opportunity to truly experience perfection as neither better nor worse, bigger or smaller than anything else in the universe. And then slowly over time, inquiring into and slowly deconstructing our patterns of measuring ourselves to others, we can have moments when we truly meet each other on equal ground. But like the Buddha advises, don't believe this because I say it or because you read it in a book. Believe only your own experience. That's why we practice. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of patience. It takes a lot of tenacity to do this kind of work. It isn't something we can learn by listening to a talk and then just believing it. I think that's pretty much Buddhism in a nutshell right there.
So that's meeting others on equal ground. I'll pause here for any questions or comments or reflections. It's raining really hard here. <clears throat> All right, so Anne, Anne's gonna tell us all about sewing, <clears throat> why we do it, where it comes from, what is a rakasu? Is it just for keeping the food off your shirt? <laughs> right, <laughs> it is like a little bib, but yeah. you're not supposed to wear it while you're eating. <laughs> I think I remember that, yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you all for um, being here this evening and, and for allowing me to come and talk about sewing a little bit. Um, and I wanted to start with a story that um, once upon a time, there was a king. This was king, his name was King Bimbasara. And he was a follower of the Buddha and lived at the same time as the Buddha. One time he was riding and he, riding his horse, and he saw a monk in the distance. And he got off his horse and made obeisance to this monk. And when he got up, he realized this was not a Buddhist monk. Um, and he was very ashamed. He was very upset. He had gone to all this trouble. He had ridden over, he had gotten down off the horse, he had gotten down into the dust. Um, so he goes to the Buddha and he says, Lord. And the Buddha says, yes. And the king says, your followers don't have any recognizable way for me to identify them. So I'm just going around bowing to anyone. So please, could you fix that? I wanna, I wanna be able to tell when it's a follower of yours that I'm meeting with. And so the Buddha said, yes, I, I can do that. So sometime after that, the Buddha was walking with Ananda, his, um, disciple and great friend and they happened to walk in a rice field and the buddha said to ananda do you notice the pattern of the rice field and ananda says yes buddha said you notice there's a place where the water is and you can see the young rice and you see the paths that are raised that go through the rice field and make a pattern one path goes this way and the other path goes that way. And um, there's corners and the, the fields are like this. And he says to Ananda, would you be able to design a piece of cloth that had that pattern, that had these fields and paths and connections, corners? And Ananda said, yes. And so Ananda, who 
was a great sewer by all accounts, um, brought the design to the Buddha and the Buddha said, yes, this is the robe. So that's the story about the very beginning of Rakasu and the beginning of, of Buddhist robes that this story says they were to identify a particular group of people as followers of the Buddha. Um, I wanted to go ahead and show you some pictures before we went on. I took some pictures of my own Rakasu and I had some pictures from a teacher of mine about of rice fields. So I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen with you all and show you these, let's see. So this is my Rakasu. Um, you can see that it's well-worn and that it has a patchwork face and tiny little stitches, tiny little stitches. Let's see if I can bring up the next. And these stitches are a particular type of stitch that when one is sewing a rakasu, there is a mantra that goes with each stitch. So the practice of sewing is very meditative and it's very devotional. And the name of the stitch is the name of the chant, which is Namu Kie Butsu, which translates roughly into here I take refuge in Buddha. Many uh, sanghas also say the two other mantras, here I take refuge in Dharma, here I take refuge in Sangha. Another translation that I've heard is here I plunge my life into Buddha. Here I plunge my life into Dharma. Here I plunge my life into Sangha. Or I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma, I took refuge in Sangha. Um, so those are the tiny stitches. The stitches are, it's very interesting for me to look at this because I can see how everything, these stitches are very close together and these stitches are further apart. These stitches are really further apart and they really should be very uniform. <laughs> the idea is that the stitches have exactly the same slant. They should have a slight slant with the top to the left. And they should be the same amount of distance from each other. And they should be the same size. And that's the 
the thing you're striving for in sewing or what you are working on. Um, just another little detail of the Rakasu. And again, you can see this, this gets sewn. My Rakasu got sewn probably over eight months. So at one point I was making these very close together little stitches. And at another point I was making these much further apart stitches. And one time I was making big stitches. Another time I was making tiny stitches. So it's interesting. It looks like different people sewed this rakasu, but no, it was all me at different times. And this is the back side of a rakasu, which has a white piece of silk. When the rakasu is has been sewn and is completed, it's given to the teacher. And the teacher then inks on the back of the rakasu on the white silk, the student's name and the student's Buddhist name. So my Buddhist name is in there. It's Ko-Ri, which stands for Boundless Truth. And that was given to me by Peg. So these are just some photographs of rice fields and you can see how maybe someone walking in this countryside would see this and think this would be, this would be beautiful, this would be interesting. This photograph always just amazes me at the amount of work that someone took a a mountainside and made terraced fields. And this is a, a chart of kind of a lineage of the Rakasu we sew and where it started and where it's gone down through Suzuki Roshi and through Blanche Hartman, who was Flint's teacher and um, now passes on to everyone else that sews. So it's very wordy. So those are some pictures of Rakasu. Um, the reason I think that it's good to talk about sewing and talk about Rakasu in a precepts class is because it's usually associated with a student's decision to go through the ceremony of receiving the precepts after you've gone through the class and decided whether or not you want to live in this way if you want to receive the precepts. And there's a ceremony, um, Jukai, which you receive the precepts. And sewing a rakasu is not exactly the same thing, but someone who has, who wants to sew needs to have been through a precepts class 
and they need to have permission from the teacher, from, from their teacher to begin sewing. Because to me, Arakasu, again, hearkening back to the story of the beginning of the robe, it is like the precepts. It's, it is a thing that is created with devotion, a thing that is created with each stitch with um, an intention to be, to live in a certain way. And in my opinion, for me, the Rakasu reminds me, just like the precepts are reminders that this is what I've chosen. This is my intention. This is the direction I would like to be moving in. And the Rakasu is a physical manifestation of that to me. In, in reading about the Rakasu, in reading things from the ancient teachers, people talk about the Rakasu as being the Buddha, as being the Dharma, um, that it's not just something to wear. If, if it's just something to wear for you, that's, that's very painful because you've, you've taken the precepts, you've made a Rakasu, and you're still thinking that it's just something to put on instead of seeing it as the whole of practice. So I wanted to read um, a couple of things. Uh, about sewing. And one is a quote from Dogen that says, one's daily life is the realization of ultimate reality. And to me, that really speaks to how can something like sewing be a practice that is a spiritual practice, but the very act of continually putting a needle in, saying a mantra, pulling the needle out, um, working to the best of your ability to make the stitches the way you want them to be, and then seeing all the ways that you arrive, you yourself, the way you are, your imperfect self, your imperfect, perfect self arrive to judge the stitches, to look around at everybody else's rakasu and wonder why you're so far behind or be glad that you're so far ahead or to be sitting in a sewing room or in a Zoom session sewing with people and becoming irritated because they're not chanting, they're chatting. So we do, we show up and to do a very physical, repetitive, quiet practice like sewing and seeing it as a practice allows us to 
allows me to see how I show up for things, what my habits are, what my mind is doing. And to me, that's, that's Zen. Um, to study the ways, to study the self. And we don't get to skip that part. We don't get to skip the self part and go right to being actualized by the myriad things. We, we have to learn about ourselves. And sewing is a great practice for doing that. Um, so there's lots more I could say, but I wanted to leave time if people have questions uh, about sewing or rakasu or um, any of that. Yeah, Rosemary. Um, is there a special fabric that you have to use? It's very interesting. Um, it's a great question because traditionally when the Buddha first was teaching sewing robes, it was considered to be what he called pure material. And pure material for Buddha was trash fabric, fabric that had been used uh, to wipe your butt or to clean up your menstrual blood or that had been chewed by rats or cattle or that it had wrapped a, a dead body. I mean, there's a long list that in the, the um, very arcane rules about sewing uh, that list all the types of cloth that you're supposed to gather and clean and then dye kind of a muddy indeterminate color because it's supposed to be something that no one else wants. It's not supposed to be an object of envy or pride. Um, that being said, there have been times in Buddhist history where they were made out of beautiful silk brocade. So historically, they were intended to be made out of refuse. And you hear the description of patched robe monks. And that's what that comes from, that these were pieced together, um, sewn back together. But now at Apamata and in the Soto Zen lineage, which Apamata is part of in the United States, generally we use a cotton, um, and the silk, the white silk panel in the back is like a silk taffeta. Uh, people use cotton or silk or synthetic thread. Um, there are lots of, like any form, and Zen is so rife with forms, it is a great field of judgment. Oh, this is the right way to do it. No, this is the right way to do it. No, you can't use that kind of thread. Oh, this is the wrong color. 
And so there are endless arguments about that. But the rakasu and the sewing is beyond that, is something outside of that. One of the famous quotes from uh, the sewing teacher from the San Francisco Zen Center that brought the practice to San Francisco, the most important thing is to sew with heart. It's the most important point. Anything else? Any other questions about the robes or sewing? I have a question. Is it dyed that color of brown or is that the color that it, you buy? Because I, I think I've noticed everybody's is the same color. At Apamata, within a Sangha, within a particular um, group, you will have the same color. Different colors of Rakasu within a sangha represent different um, roles. Roles, thank you, Todd. Um, so my rakasu at Apamata is blue and that's someone that's taken the precepts and as a lay person. So- um, Then there's purple I, too, now that you say that. Somebody, is that- are there more than one colors? Well, at Apamata, there are no monks and nuns. So everyone is a lay person. You only um, have or make a rakasu if you've taken precepts or you receive precepts. Um, and they're all blue. Todd has a green one because he's a lay and trusted teacher. Mm -hmm. um, Hag, because she's a Dharma transmitted teacher has a brown one. Um, and that's traditional in Soto Zen centers. If you see someone in brown robes, they're the transmitted teacher versus black robes or ordained priests. Yeah, or, yeah. So, but if you went to a Sangha in Philadelphia, the, they might be a different color. They might not be blue. They might be gray. They might be kind of dull maroon. That, that's just something for the teachers to, to choose. But once it's chosen, it's chosen. The one place that you get to, or the, there are two places where you get to impose your own um, preferences on a rakasu. There are choices for thread color, and you can choose that. And also the, the rakasu has a, a small envelope that it's stored in that you also make. And the lining of that envelope you get to choose whatever kind of uh, fabric you want. I have a question for you guys. How many of you would be interested in sewing if sewing were to start back up again? Yeah. 
Okay, great. That's good for me to know. That's good for me to know. Um, because doing a Zoom teaching, it would be good to have a group of people that all started at the same time. Um, even though that wouldn't stay that way. I mean, people go at different paces, but that's encouraging for me and uh, to think about and, and I'll, you will hear more about it. Yeah, Rosemary. Um, is there a pattern for a paper, yes. paper pattern? Well, usual, well, different teachers, different sewing teachers do different things, um, especially now that we're doing things at a distance mostly. A lot of sewing teachers measure and cut out all the pieces themselves, and then they send those to their students and the students put them together. Some teachers, I'm, I've met a teacher that um, was teaching a man in prison to sew a rakasu. And they would have to mail the rakasu back and forth to each other to, for the teacher to see it and tell the man the next step and um, yeah, so different ways to do it. Usually you don't, um, it's not that you have a paper pattern. You can do that. There are people that do that, but generally it's just measuring it out and cutting it and then starting to put it together by um, some instructions that are kind of Zen instructions. Fabian, what did you have a question? Are the stitching patterns all the same? I'm sorry, was that Joan? The the stitching pattern, they're not. Interestingly enough, I've learned this. There are some sewing teachers and some traditions that say the stitches should be the size of a poppy seed and they should be straight up and down. And then some traditions like I was taught sewing by peg and the stitch should be maybe a millimeter and it should be slanted from left to right. But different teachers have different ways of doing it. It should be consistent within the Sangha. Does that answer that question? Yeah, Fabian, what was your question? So um, it's a class you offer after we've done the precept class, correct? And then it starts on Zoom. And how many times is it like once a week, once a month, do we... So in between class or? Good questions. I mean, it hasn't been decided. I haven't started the Zoom sewing yet. So why don't, you describe, uh, why don't you describe how it was being done before COVID disrupted everything? Yeah, back in the way back, 
it was that we would gather at Apamata, the actual building in Austin. And there was a part of the building, there was a room called the study and there was a large table. And um, we would gather once a week for an hour and a half. And the first hour was silent. You could talk and ask questions of the teacher, but social talking was not encouraged. And then the last 30 minutes, people could chat, people could check in with each other. But we met once a week. Um, and people that was would a, it was a drop-in, right? It was it yeah. went on basically forever, every Sunday for years and years and people would start at different times. And some people may not come every week, would only come once a month. Some people would sell a rock or in six months and some people would sell one in two or three years. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I would expect that's how um, online sewing class would go as well. It would just be at a particular time and people could show up and then people could um, ask questions uh, on email, but yeah, we just haven't worked it all out. Okay, thank you for explaining it. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> and if there are no other questions, I thought I would end by just showing some pictures from, this is from council one meeting. Oh, I don't know, six or seven years ago where one of our council members, John Cooley had made the decision that he was going to uh, go off to Tassajara to the monastery, which uh, Flint had done. <clears throat> and instead of, you know, the, the little bibs, the little Rakasu robes, the ordained priests they have to sew full sets of robes, you know, head to toe, okesas. So you can imagine how many individual little stitches and chants are done to do that. And so when Flint heard this, he ran out and told John, he's like, you look like my size, hold on. And he comes back and he starts giving him his okesa and putting it on him. You're gonna need this for the monastery. So this is Flint uh, putting the robe on John for the first time, explaining how to wear it. It was just a, a nice moment. Yeah. That's a really wonderful thing to give somebody the robe that you made and that you wore for years. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your presence and I speak for all of us when I thank you, Anne, for taking time out of your evening to come talk to us about sewing practice. It's much appreciated.
Well, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a lovely month. We will see you next month.